I want you to know, brothers, that our fathers were all under the cloud and all passed through the sea, and all were baptized into Moses in the cloud and in the sea, and all ate the same spiritual food and all drank the same spiritual drink, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Nevertheless, with most of them, God was not pleased, for they were overthrown in the wilderness. Now these things took place as examples for us, that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were. As it is written, the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction, on whom the end of the ages has come. Therefore, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful, and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning, everybody. We're continuing our series through uh, Exodus. Our series is called The Gospel According to Exodus. And you can join me today in Exodus chapter 7. We're going to talk about the plagues. We're going to do the first few plagues today. In the first, uh, we've looked now for a few months at the first 10 or so chapters of Exodus. And one theological idea has become maybe more clear than all of the others. And that is God is supreme over all creation, over all human rulers, and over all so-called gods. God sent Moses to Pharaoh to say, let my people go that they may serve me. And Pharaoh refused God. Uh, He thinks of himself as someone that doesn't need to obey anyone. He thinks of himself as the Pharaoh. He's the ultimate king. Pharaoh didn't think he needed to submit to anybody. Pharaoh believed in many gods, but he didn't think that any of them had authority over them. And so Yahweh comes to him and responds with ten plagues. When Moses and Aaron come and say, here's what God says, God has authority over you, Pharaoh, and God is telling you to do this and such with the Jewish people, Pharaoh rebels, and so God sends 10 plagues. Exodus 9, 14, for this time I will send all my plagues on you yourself and on your servants and your people so that you may know, this is the purpose of the plagues, so that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The purpose of the plagues was to show everyone, including Pharaoh, the Egyptians, the Jewish people, and us this morning, the purpose of the plagues was to show everyone that God is supreme over all creation, over all human leaders, and over all so-called gods. Let's begin in chapter 7. We're just going to look at the first couple of plagues here this morning. Exodus chapter 7, verse 14. I'm going to read a couple of paragraphs, and then I'll make some comments on it. Then the Lord said to Moses... This is Exodus 7:14. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. 
Go to Pharaoh in the morning as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you saying, let my people go that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. So this is God talking to Pharaoh. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus says the Lord, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in vessels of wood and in vessels of stone. Now, this next verse is important because it's showing us that Moses and Aaron are getting to know the Lord and they're starting to take risks here. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. So this takes boldness because they don't even have the people behind them at this point. Remember, they're not listening to these promises of God because their hearts are broken as a result of slavery. And so Moses and Aaron are kind of on their own and they lock arms and they walk right into the lion's den here. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. But the magicians of of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. Isn't that interesting? The magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's heart remained hardened as he would not listen to them. As the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house and he did not take this even to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. So a couple of things I'd like to draw your attention to here in verse 16, but so far you have not obeyed. This is God talking to Pharaoh. See, human beings, including Pharaoh, exist for the purpose of worshiping God. We are under God. He is the King of kings, the Lord of lords. He is sovereign over all creation, over the entire universe. No one exists outside of God's rule. God is not a territorial God. He's not just the God of a few people who happen to ascribe to a certain kind of doctrinal beliefs. God is the God of everyone. Now, the issue here is, does the person recognize that God is God? No king is equal to God. No king is above God. For example, Revelation describes Jesus as the ruler of kings on earth. And later on, we see him come. He's got it written on his leg, maybe a tattoo or something. And it says, King of kings and Lord of lords in Revelation 19. King David wrote in Psalm 86, All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. That's King David talking about what it will be like in the end times when all creation recognizes that Jesus is the King of kings. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. Pharaoh does not know this. Pharaoh has not learned this. Pharaoh thinks that he is above God. Pharaoh thinks that he can say no to God and live. And so he needs, he needs to go to theology class here. In verse 20, it says, Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. And as I said, I think it's good to see Moses and Aaron really starting to trust God. 
Uh, Aaron is going to commit one of the most ridiculous sins of the Exodus here in a few chapters with the golden calf. But at least at this point, he's, he's on the horse and he and Moses are doing what they need to be doing. They still have a lot to learn. But right there at the beginning of their relationship with the Lord, right there at the beginning of their leadership, beginning of their mission, uh, they're beginning to trust the Lord with boldness. Verse 22, I want to talk about this for a minute here. It says, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So you got to wonder, how did they do it? How did they take water and turn it into blood? How did they do that? And it might have been just a magic trick. That's possible that it was just a magic trick in Pharaoh's court that they had some kind of a potion that turned water into a red color or something like this. But I think it probably turned into blood. I don't think Pharaoh's an idiot. And uh, so how did they do it? How did they turn water into blood? Might have been a magic trick, but more likely it was demonic. The Bible tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 20, what pagans sacrifice they offer to demons and not to God. Other religions are not simply in error, but they are demonic. Now, of course, Mormons don't know that demons are behind the teaching and the expansion of their religion. Muslims don't know this. Hindus don't know this. But make no mistake here. Satan's goal is to kill people. And the best way to kill people is to lead them away from the truth. John 11, Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. The Bible teaches us the truth that saves us from eternal death. And demons design other religions to lead us away from that Bible truth. Even Moses, before he died, the song of Moses at the end of Deuteronomy He's predicting that eventually Israel will turn away from God. He's predicting, that, he's predicting this so strongly that he talks about it in the past tense. And he says, they stirred him to jealousy with strange gods. With abominations, they provoked him to anger. They sacrificed to demons that were no gods, to gods they had never known, to new gods that had come recently, whom your fathers had never dreaded. When Israel turned away from the Bible, when they turned away from Yahweh to other religions, they turned to demons that were no gods, says Moses. Psalm 106, they served their idols, which became a snare to them. They sacrificed their sons and their daughters to the demons. All false religions, all other religions are demonic. They're not simply an error, but they are demonic. And the purpose of Satan behind other religions is to lead people away from the truth that saves them from eternal death. And the religion of Egypt was no different Having been to Egypt myself, I was excited. I've told you this before. I was excited to go to Egypt because it's such a famous place. My fourth grade teacher had been and showed slides and so on, and I had been excited uh, all those years to go. And when I was about 22, I was able to go to Egypt, and it was shocking to me how many of the locations had to do with human sacrifice. Um, So very likely by demonic power, Pharaoh's magicians turned water to blood. Now, there are interesting parallels between the Exodus and the future end times. It's interesting if you think about this in your own time and your own devotions or so on as you're reading through the Exodus during this series. It's interesting to read it at the same time that you're reading the book of Revelation. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 says, The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders 
and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. The Exodus and the end times both include these false signs and wonders that deceive people into rejecting God. And there's more of a parallel there in 2 Thessalonians talking about with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. That's a very interesting verse. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. Whatever your theological system is, it needs to include this truth about God that the Exodus and the end times both include a strong delusion from God. You remember how God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And this seems to be God's judgment, as Second Thessalonians says, because they refused to love the truth. So God sends this delusion, and we're told why, so that they may believe what is false. It might be surprising that God would do this. But in Romans 9, Paul says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy, Paul continues, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. Romans nine fourteen to 18. So here you have Pharaoh bolstered by demonic ideas and demonic signs refusing to obey God. And in verse 22, so Pharaoh's heart remained hardened and he would not listen. He went into his house and he did not even take this to heart. You wonder if maybe he even plugged his ears on his way in to his, in, on the way into his house there. Now let's read one more plague in chapter eight. Exodus chapter eight, the next plague, the plague of frogs. Then the Lord said to Moses, go into Pharaoh and say to him, thus says the Lord, let my people go that they may serve me. But if you refuse to let them go, behold, I will plague all your country with frogs. The Nile shall swarm with frogs that shall come up into your house and into your bedroom and on your bed and into the houses of your servants and your people and into your ovens and your kneading bowls. The frogs shall come up on you and on your people and on all your servants. And the Lord said to Moses, say to Aaron, stretch out your hand with your staff over the rivers, over the canals, over the pools, and make frogs come up on the land of Egypt. So Aaron stretched out his hand over the waters of Egypt, and the frogs came up and covered the land of Egypt. But here we are again, verse 7, but the magicians did the same by their secret arts and made frogs come up on the land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh called Moses and Aaron and said, Plead with the Lord to take away the frogs from me and from my people, and I will let the people go to sacrifice to the Lord. Moses said to Pharaoh, Be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people. It's interesting, Moses' response here. So here's what's happening. Pharaoh says, Would you go talk to God and tell him that we want to get rid of these frogs? And Moses responds by saying, Okay, tell me exactly when you want me to pray that prayer. And I think that's partially because Moses wants to show Pharaoh that that God is in charge of this and that the moment of that prayer is when the frogs go away. 
So Moses said to Pharaoh, be pleased to command me when I am to plead for you and for your servants and for your people that the frogs be cut off from you and your house and be left only in the Nile. And he said, tomorrow. I'm not sure why he said tomorrow. What do you think? Why did he say tomorrow? How about now? Would now would be good. But he said tomorrow. I don't know why. Moses said, be it as you say, so that you may know that there is no one like the Lord, our God. The frogs shall go away from you and your houses and on your servants and your people. They shall be left only in the Nile. So Moses and Aaron went out from Pharaoh and Moses cried to the Lord about the frogs as he had agreed with Pharaoh. And the Lord did according to the word of Moses. The frogs died out in the houses, the courtyards and the fields, and they gathered them together in heaps and the land stank. But when Pharaoh saw that there was a respite, he hardened his heart and would not listen to them as the Lord had said. Verse four there, the frogs shall come up on you. You know, the Egyptians were a little fastidious about their bodies. They were kind of particular about their bodies. They would wash all the time. They would shave all their body hair off and so on. And especially Pharaoh's body. This is like royalty all over the earth. Nobody touched the king. And yet with this particular uh, plague, you've got frogs crawling on Pharaoh's body, which was pretty gross, especially for an Egyptian. The interesting thing is that one of the Egyptian gods uh, was in the form of a frog, and so they, were, they weren't even able to kill these things. They had to just kind of shoo them away, and you have to just imagine uh, that, uh, how terrible that, that would have been. But then again, here you have verse 7. The magicians did the same by their secret arts. Same thing happened here. Eventually, they'll run out of gas, and they're not going to be able to keep up with God anymore. But at least at this point, they're able to, to do this, and it's interesting that they did the same. Why not remove the frogs? Now, wouldn't that have been a better miracle? You know, I mean, if we're really kind of doing a divine battle here, why not uh, counter th- this infestation of frogs by removing some of the frogs or stopping the plague? But instead, it's interesting, most of the things that Satan does backfire And here you have this supposed miracle, this so-called miracle that actually increases the severity of the plague. They add to the problem. Even with false miracles, it's obvious to everybody that God is the only one who can stop these plagues. And so they they go to Moses and Aaron and ask for the plague to stop. And exactly when they they pray this, then it stops. Uh, So it's obvious that God is supreme here, but still Pharaoh's heart remains hard and he refuses to obey. A couple of plagues here this morning, and I'd like to draw a couple of implications from these two plagues. First of all, it needs to be clear that these plagues are divine warfare. These aren't just fun little tricks that are happening, but this is divine warfare. Egyptians believed in Hopi, who was the god of the Nile. Egypt was massively dependent on the Nile, still is, and God turned it into flowing, stinking death. This was divine warfare against Hopi, the Nile god. And the Egyptians had many gods. Hecht was the fertility goddess who took the shape of a frog. These plagues were a direct hit on Pharaoh and his so-called gods. With each plague, God is showing his supremacy over all creation, over all human leaders, and overall so-called gods. But the heart of the issue here has to do with worship. The purpose of the Exodus was worship. 
God was bringing his people out of slavery so that they could worship him, so that he could live right in the midst of them. And these plagues, even the plagues are designed to bring glory to God. Exodus 14, 4, God says, I will get glory over Pharaoh and all his host. Everything that God does is for his glory. The 10 plagues show us the danger of refusing to glorify God, the danger of rejecting God. God created us for the purpose of worshiping him, and there are horrible consequences for not worshiping him. You remember the flood in Noah's day. It was divine judgment for rejecting God. I love this story that people were watching the movie Noah a couple of days ago, and the earthquake started in in Los Angeles, which was apparently very disturbing as you're watching God's judgment on screen and the building starts to shake. So you remember the, the, the flood in Noah's day was judgment on human wickedness, and we see this also in the book of Revelation describing future judgment. This is one of my favorite sections of Revelation here. It's Revelation chapter 6. It's this precious interaction between the martyrs who had been killed for their faith, the martyrs who are coming to God saying, when is justice going to happen? When are you going to bring judgment on the earth for our blood? And so they go right into the throne room and they ask God, when, is this, when are you going to bring judgment? And so listen to what God says to them. When he opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain for the word of God and for the witness they had borne. They cried out with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete. Wow, that's interesting. God has a a number or a quantity of martyrs that bring glory to him in their death and it hasn't been fulfilled yet and so therefore judgment hasn't started. So they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete who were to be killed as they themselves had been. When he opened the sixth seal, I looked and behold, there was a great earthquake and the sun became black as sackcloth. The full moon became like blood and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as the fig tree sheds its winter fruit when shaken by a gale. The sky vanished like a scroll that is being rolled up, and every mountain and island was removed from its place. Then the kings of the earth, and the great ones, and the generals, and the rich and the powerful, and everyone, slave and free, hid themselves in caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling to the mountains and rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who is seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can stand? Amazing section there from Revelation telling us what the judgment of God will look like in the future when God comes again to judge the living and the dead for sin. And that passage there in Revelation 6 shows us that God will judge humanity for rebellion. Like Pharaoh, like people in the days of Noah, God will judge humanity for rebellion. That passage also shows us that it is right to desire God's judgment on humanity. As these martyrs were in God's presence, they were crying out for justice. Now, it's good for us to take this time that we have, this limited time. We're in the last hour, and we ought to go out with the gospel message in order to save as many as possible. But as we think missionally, we are also thinking about justice. We are excited for God to come and make all things new 
and to finally judge sin once for all. And this passage also shows us the urgency of worshiping God. This is not an optional thing. This is a big deal. Worshiping God is a big deal. God requires worship and God punishes those who do not worship him. Second Corinthians 5.20, Paul says, We are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So because God is who he is, because God will judge sin, and because God has made a way of escape possible as he brought the, as he brought the Jewish people out of Egypt, and as he sent his son Jesus to bring us out of sin so that we can be reconciled to God, we urge you to repent for your sins and to put your trust in Jesus Christ so that you can escape the wrath to come. The purpose of the Exodus is to foreshadow this freedom from sin and to show us the urgency of surrendering to the God of all creation. And finally here, just a couple words about idolatry. Pharaoh had all kinds of gods in his temple and on his body. He would have them on his, his headdress and believed in a whole, whole bunch of different gods. Uh, idolatry is a major theme of the Old Testament, and we're going to see the Israelites struggle with it even later in the book of Exodus. And idols have to do with safety and prosperity. Safety and prosperity, that's what idols all through the globe, all through human history, idols have to do with safety and prosperity. Human beings want healthy babies, healthy flocks, healthy crops, or whatever we need to put food on the table. We're afraid of natural disasters. We're afraid of drought. We're afraid of sickness, stuff out of our control, and that's what idols are for. Idols deal with the fears that we have in, in relation to natural disasters, drought, sickness, and anything that would threaten our family. Idols displace the one true God who actually rules all of those things. We depend on God for all things. We follow God no matter where he goes, but idols are designed to displace him as the creator, as the sustainer, as the savior. Ancient Near East idols, you may have seen them, seen pictures of them online or seen them in museums. They were usually these little fat naked women with big breasts. And the point of this is because it has to do with fertility. This is what people want. We want wives and flocks and crops to be healthy, to be fertile. Nobody wants to be poor or alone or sick or barren. And so we either trust God with these things, no matter how he rules, we keep worshiping him, or we turn to idols for these things. So now you might say, well, but I don't have any little fat, naked women figurines in my house. I don't have a shrine like this, and so idolatry is not a problem for me. But you know, idolatry does not require a figurine. Idolatry happens in the heart whenever we don't trust God with our lives. And all of us struggle with idolatry. It's part of having a fallen human nature. We see people struggling with idolatry, Old Testament and New it, uh, idolatry of the heart happens whenever we don't trust God with our lives. The Egyptians relied on the Nile and on Pharaoh and on all kinds of lowercase g gods to keep them healthy and prosperous. And during the Exodus, God offers this nationwide theology class about who is really in charge of the weather and of sickness and of crops and of life and death. We live in a fallen world with all kinds of threats. Do we rely on God or do we have idolatrous hearts? 
Now, there's an easy way to identify the idolatry that happens in our hearts. There's an easy way to identify that, and that's to look at how we pray. How do we pray? All through the plagues, Pharaoh asked Moses and Aaron to pray. Pharaoh learned a lot about God. He understood that God was in charge of the plagues. He understood how to stop the plagues by talking to Moses and Aaron. He was watching God's supremacy over the false gods of Egypt. And Pharaoh, with all of his power, could not stop these plagues except by praying to Yahweh. So Pharaoh asked Moses and Aaron to pray, which is a good thing. That seems really good. It looks like Pharaoh is coming to his senses, except Phil Riken, president of Wheaton. He said, many desperate people have called for a minister without ever really intending to call upon God. Many desperate people have called for a minister without ever really intending to call upon God. Our prayers reveal what's going on in our hearts. Pharaoh only prays for the plagues to stop. His prayers are not worshipful. And remember, worship is what God is after. So do we have a worshipful heart? Or do we just pray for situations to change? We can find out what our idols are by looking at our prayers. All of us struggle with idolatry. All of us have a little bit of Pharaoh in us, hardened toward God and needing to break through that hardness with the truth of who God is so that we will be worshipful. So here are four prayers. I will conclude with this here for the next few minutes. Four prayers that destroy idolatry in our hearts. Four prayers that destroy idolatry in our hearts. And one, number one is give thanks in all circumstances. Thankfulness and gratitude is a huge way to defeat idolatry in our hearts. Ephesians 5.20, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's all kinds of things to be thankful for. Thankful for your shower this morning, if you took one. Thankful for the chair you're sitting on, all kinds of things. Thankful for the people sitting next to you. Thankful, thankful that you're healthy or getting healthy or whatever it may be. There's a million things that we can thank the Lord for. And learning how to thank God in all of the situations that we're in is one way of defeating idolatry in our heart because it begins to treat God like uh, the green lady in uh, Paralandra at the beginning of the story where she's constantly talking about God and praising God for everything that happens in her life. That's what we're after in our hearts is to have worshipful hearts that are recognizing that all good things come from God. Second prayer that destroys idolatry in our hearts is to wait for the Lord. Prayers of waiting for the Lord. Psalm 37, fret not yourself because of evildoers be not envious of wrongdoers, for they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the day and your justice as the noonday. Do you hear the waiting that is woven into this prayer? Yes, there are evildoers, there's wrong, there's all kinds of problems, except be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil, for the evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while, the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. 
but the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. Waiting for the Lord, an important part of praying. Praying prayers of waiting for the Lord, which means that we understand what his promises are. We know what he has promised to do. And we're talking about that in our prayer. And we are waiting for him and talking about how he's coming soon. And these things have a way of eradicating the anger and the fear that connect to the idols in our hearts. Give thanks in all circumstances. Wait for the Lord. Number three, be content no matter where he leads. This is another way to pray. Praying prayers of contentment. Philippians chapter four, one of the best sections of scripture If you struggle with contentment, uh, if you tend to be chronically sad, uh, Philippians 4 is a wonderful passage for you where Paul says, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Weave that kind of contentment into your prayer. A lot of our prayers just tend to be, God, it's bad, fix it. And, th- and it's good to go to the Lord with those kinds of prayers. There's nothing wrong with lament. But we also need to weave contentment into our prayer, recognizing that we can do all things through Christ who, th- who strengthens us. We need to learn this secret that Paul has learned so that our prayers are not just complaints of, oh, take away, fix it, come back or kill me or whatever, but that our prayers go beyond that, that our prayers find this this depth and this beauty of satisfaction in the all-satisfying God. Be content no matter where he leads, no matter where he leads. And we're going to see this in the Exodus as God leads them to strange places where there wasn't water and there wasn't very good food in order to teach them that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. That has to do with contentment. So God leads us into strange places, recognizing his sovereignty over our lives and being content no matter where he leads. Make sure that contentment is part of your prayer. It's a way of pounding away at the idols of the heart. And finally, number four, worship. Worship. Make sure your prayer is worshipful. We need to work on making sure that our prayers are worshipful, not just asking God to change it, not just saying, God, fix the checkbook, fix the job, fix the relationship, but going beyond that to worship in our prayers, not just on Sunday morning, not just with my favorite songs, but that my prayers are regularly and massively worshipful. This is what God is after with us is to make us worshipful people. That is his purpose in all things. First Chronicles 29, yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and in the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. That's how to pray. That's a great prayer. And look, I can't whip that kind of thing off off the top of my head. And so God gives us the Bible God gives us the Psalms. God gives us all kinds of scripture so that we can speak to him with worshipfulness, with contentment, with waiting in his promises and with gratitude. So that's a few suggestions on how to avoid the problem that Pharaoh has. There are great consequences for committing Pharaoh's sin. Rejecting God is a massive problem. We're all tempted by false uh, saviors, We're all tempted by deceptions. We're all moved away and distracted by things that uh, 
The prince of this world has designed to keep us away from God. Prayer is a very important way to counteract that. Prayer is a very important thing that happens in our hearts as we weave gratitude and waiting and contentment and worship into our prayers. So the purpose of the plagues was to show everyone that God is supreme over all creation, over all human rulers, and over all so-called gods. There are many so-called gods, many false saviors, many deceptions that lead away. Do not be deceived by them. Don't be deceived as Pharaoh was. Isaiah 118, come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. So along with the Apostle Paul, we urge you this morning to repent and believe and to put your trust in God. Don't follow the false ways like Pharaoh did who continued in his disobedience and paid the ultimate price. Continue with God as you may, maybe you've been coming to church for a long time. Continue loving him and trusting him and following him no matter what. Working on the, idolat- uh, the idolatrous temptations of your heart. Colossians 1.13, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Let's close in prayer. God in heaven, you are the one true God. And we know that. You have written it into creation. You have written it into your word. You have brought the Holy Spirit to bring conviction and truth to us this morning. And we know that you are the one true God. And yet our hearts are sick, fallen with sin so easily distracted and tempted by other things, by alternate explanations of this universe and the afterlife and the purpose of our lives. And so, God, I pray that each one of us, I pray for all of us here this morning, that your Holy Spirit would help us to understand the Scriptures and that you would help us to fully worship you in spirit and in truth. Help us to give glory to you throughout our entire lives. I pray that you would make us prayerful, Uh, God-fearing people who are waiting for you to return. I pray that you would protect us from plagues, protect us from the consequences of sin. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.